trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, glad you could come aboard for some top-shelf wrong think. I'm joined by Eric Peters. We do this once a week. Eric, great to catch up with you. How are you today? Well, I'm happy to report that I haven't died suddenly yet. Oh, I, I've got a lot of links from people, this, uh, this died suddenly film. Have, have you had a chance to watch any of it yet? No, I did watch the trailer, and after work today, we are definitely going to sit down and watch the whole thing. And also that other one, the, the pandemic one that you mentioned before we got on the air. Yeah, it's uh, pandemic will be coming out, I think, in March of next year. But uh, died suddenly. It's it's right up front. And maybe let's let's take some time and talk about this because things look pretty normal right now. But I wonder how many people realize the apparatus is still very much in place. And I think I think uh, Biden actually let it slip at the G20 summit last week. Well, when the next pandemic comes along, they're going to lock us down again, or at least they intend to lock us down. No question. Uh, in fact, they just reauthorized, or rather I should say he, the Biden thing, just re-upped or whatever the term is, the uh, the endless emergency uh, yep. that has been in place now for the past three years. So clearly their intention is to just hold that in abeyance for now uh, until they decide that it's time to lock us down again. And so I think it's only a question of time before they do. And, and I got to thinking about that at 4 o'clock this morning as I was guzzling coffee, and I got to thinking about the masking and all of that and how it will be critically important for us this time around to absolutely refuse to put that vile thing on our face. You know, the first time it took us by storm, we didn't really know, a lot of us didn't look into it, and a lot of people listened to the so-called trusted authorities. Well, we now know the authorities are untrustworthy. We know they lied to us, and that this was all a really bogus, hideous, horrible thing. And I think it's incumbent upon us to decide now, before we're faced with it, whether we're going to do this again or not. I personally didn't do it the first time, and I absolutely will not do it again going forward. Well, I had to draw upon your example and your courage last week. I had a couple of medical visits, one taking my mom to the hospital uh, for an appointment. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm telling you, the, the mentality is still so ever-present. Everywhere I went, people were, oh, do you have a mask? They'd hand me a mask. Well, you better go ahead and put it on. And I just would hold it in my hand and say, I'll put it on here in a, in a bit, or I'll put it on when I'm ready. But uh, somehow it never got on my face. But uh, but it was clear they they were enforcing it at every possible doorway you passed through. Everything's upside down, isn't it? You would assume that uh, at hospitals, at a doctor's office, that would be the place that first took off the masks, right? You know, because after all, these people are supposed to understand medical things and scientific things. So, uh, but instead, we have the fact that they are still practicing most ardently the sickness kabuki, and I think it has to do with the fact that. Uh, for the most part, most doctors now are employees. They've been degraded in a way. It used to be, and I speak from some experience here because my dad was a doctor and my grandfather was a doctor, and doctors generally had their own practices. Uh, you know, they ran their own business. They were in charge of their operation. Now a lot of them are employees of a hospital, and these hospitals are gigantic corporations or rather owned by giant corporations that are now very woke, and the order comes from on high that you will practice sickness kabuki and if you do not practice the sickness kabuki, you won't be allowed to practice medicine. And, you know, these guys have put in 
quarter million, half a million dollars into their education, and you know they're heavily invested. And what are they going to do? Just not practice medicine? So they go along with it, even though they know it's farcical. But that's the reason for it. Yeah, it's it's very discouraging from the standpoint of uh, you know things look pretty normal, but uh, you you cannot let your guard down because. It, it's still sitting there. It's just it's just waiting for the right scare. Oh, here comes a virus, and now it's time to implement everything that we had, and perhaps more. Yeah, they've been talking about it, actually, with regard to ordinary things like flu and this new RSV thing, whatever that is. It's another kind of respiratory virus, apparently. Uh, so what they want to do is maintain it on a slow boil in perpetuity because it's proved to be incredibly useful to them. They have managed to uh, use fear of sickness, that is hypochondria, uh, as a as a lever to impose things on the general population that would have been inconceivable uh, if, if they'd even been suggested as recently as three years ago. That's how far forward um, we've come as a result of this, this this weaponization of hypochondria. Yep, I'm with you. And, and like you've pointed out many times, the time to make up your mind is not when you're standing there at the doorway of a business or a medical office, you know, trying to decide, okay, you know, do I, do I make a stand here or not? You've got to make your mind yep. up ahead of time and then stick to it. I agree. And I said, now I'm trying to be gentle here because I understand that people were under duress and a lot of people were taken by storm and a lot of people just didn't know and they didn't have the time to look into it. But now we do know. But my point is, that if only uh, three years ago, more people had said, no, I'm not doing this. This is ridiculous. I'm not going to do it, period. Uh, we would never be where we are right now. They would have never managed to roll out the vaccine regime either. You know, people called me uh, uh, hysteric and that I was exaggerating when I would say, look, if you put on that stupid mask, it's certain that they are then going to say, well, you got to take a vaccine. I was saying that more than two and a half years ago, because to me, the logic of it seems self-evident. A lot of people didn't see it. Anyway, the thing is, if we had done it then, none of this would have happened. We wouldn't be where we are now. So let's not make the same mistake again twice. No, I completely agree. And and I think another thing that came out of that G20 summit, if I'm remembering correctly, is uh, there were a number of nations, the U.S. among them, that signed on to the idea of some kind of global vaccine passport, which, again, is just waiting for the next crisis, the next emergency, and then suddenly travel is going to be extremely restricted. I assume commerce will be restricted as well mm-hmm. for anybody who's outside of that uh, vaccine pen. Sure. My understanding is that the United States still maintains that. You know, And if you want to travel into the United States from somewhere else, you have to show proof of that. I think that's accurate. Uh, you may know better than I. That's, that sounds yeah, right. They, they, yeah, certainly they want to do this. And I wrote an article about it the other day. I think it's going to transcend international travel. Um, what they hope to do is restrict internal travel and prevent you from uh, even going into a store, again, using these vaccine passports that will be tied into this digital currency that they are, are going to try to impose on people, uh, which will be a, you know, a, a, a double punch, a twofer. You will uh, not be able to use money except through your phone or some app, and they'll be able to turn that on and off according to whether you have done the various things that they're going to demand that you do, including mask wearing and vaccinating. Wow. Yep. It's, uh, it's hard to shake the feeling that uh, someone's slipping a straight jacket on us, isn't it? Well, yeah. And it's just a matter of, you know, sticking your face in the ice cold water and coming to grips with the reality that these people are malignant. It's not that they are uh, wrongheaded and well-intended that, ooh, they made mistakes, but they really were just trying to keep us all safe. It's critically important to understand that we're dealing with evil, malignant people. 
and that there is no appeasing them, there is no rationality behind it, that ultimately all this is about is our submitting to their power, period. And once you, you understand that and you proceed forward from that basis, everything else becomes clear and much easier to deal with. I Someone pointed out also, and I thought this made a lot of sense, um, when you see that the solution was rolled out before there was ever a crisis for it to solve. The, the mm-hmm. solution was prepared. They just needed the right crisis to bring that solution to bear. Sure. That helps you understand the depth of depravity behind the people that, that are proffering this solution that everyone must submit to. Sure, and it antedates this pandemic. What was the prior crisis? It was Islamic terrorism. Remember that one? What oh, happened yeah. to Islamic terrorism, right? You know, there's always something. They, they, were, they were sort of first drafts, if you will, but at the end of the day, it's all the same thing. It's about creating a mass hysteria, a mass panic, scaring people and telling them that you better do this because if you don't, everybody's going to die. The country's going to be invaded, whatever the dire consequence is going to be. And I'm convinced the next one is going to be this climate change business. And they're going to characterize anybody who raises a hand and says, well, wait a minute. There isn't really anything that I can see that's going particularly awry. Why should we do this? They're going to say that you're a denier. They're going to say that you're a despoiler of the earth, you're, you're, you're causing damage to everybody, and you must be shut up and perhaps shut away even. That's what they're going to do next. Yep, there are, there are three very major uh, crises that are being foisted on us right now. Climate crises, uh, voter, uh, the, or I'm sorry, uh, the, the perception that uh, elections are fraudulent, <laughs> that's a crisis, and uh, yeah. also, of course, uh, COVID or some other pandemic. And the crazy thing about it is every one of them is manufactured. Every one of them is exaggerated. Everyone. Every single one of them. It's, it's, a just, it's a tissue of lies. And uh, people should get that through their heads. And it's hard to get through your heads because of, of the, the, you know, the, just the, the monumental, appalling nature of the thing to stop to think that these people who have power, these politicians, these government bureaucrats, these international bureaucrats who nobody voted into any kind of office, who have all of this ability to meddle with and, and, and screw up our lives, are really bad people. You know, that they're out to hurt us. They're out to diminish us. They're out to reduce us to a state of serfdom. That is really a difficult thing to get your mind around, but it's nonetheless true. Well, Eric, this is one of the reasons I'm going to be finding time over the next few days to watch Died Suddenly, and I believe it's free. I think you can find it online for free, and so I'll be watching that. We've got some other stuff to touch on when we come back from our break. Yep. Again, I'm talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. If you go to my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com, you'll find a nice link that will take you directly to Eric's website. You can spend a lot of good time there. You'll learn a lot, too, not just from his articles, but also from the comments. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. We're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. And Eric, you absolutely made my day with the column that you posted recently, uh, very recently, mm-hmm. like this morning, Red Barchetta Glows <laughs> Orange. Man, yes. I, I have loved that yeah. song for so many years. So have I. And I never thought when I listened to that song as a kid growing up that it would actually become our dystopian reality. Um, for those listening who aren't familiar with it, it's a, a rock and roll song from, I think, 1981. Uh, about this dystopian future in which there is a motor law that has essentially outlawed cars. So uh, there's a heretic who uh, ignores that law and goes out to his old uncle's farm, and uh, there the uncle has has saved for him an old car. 
and, and he drives it in defiance of the powers that be. And lo and behold, look where we are. The only difference is that uh, it's actually engines that are being outlawed uh, in favor of motors. And they're not even using laws, which is a really interesting thing. They're using regulations to systematically force engines off the road in favor of electric motors. Yeah, I'm I'm seeing it coming. And, and you know, the, the, the push is, well, we're going to get everybody off of fossil fuels. But the problem mm-hmm. is... There, there's really nothing to take the place of those fossil fuels, you know, in, in way of clean energy. So that means everybody's standard well, of living is going to drop precipitously. Exactly, which is the point of this exercise. It's, you know, I've, I've long been saying that electric vehicles are the vehicles for getting us out of cars, not into electric cars. There's no infrastructure for it, and there's no market demand for it, which is something that's just like right there in your face, and it seems like people drive by it without even noticing it. Meaning that if electric cars were a better alternative, if they were cheaper, if they were more efficient, if they were more versatile, you wouldn't have to force them down people's throats. Exactly. You would put them on the market just like Henry Ford did with the Model T, and it would sell. The problem is that people don't want them because of their many liabilities, so they have to be forced down people's throats. And just as with what we were talking about in the first segment about a manufactured crisis as the predicate or premise for what they do – they posit that if you don't do this, the climate is going to change. Booga, wooga, wooga. You know, and so if you accept that as the basis, uh, if you don't contest that, then of course, how are you going to argue against electric cars? Because obviously you want the planet to die. You want the climate to change in some alarming way. So fundamentally, uh, just like with questioning the masks and questioning the vaccines, you have got to question this climate change nonsense that's being pervaded on, on people that is all based on assertions that are based on computer models that are based on grotesquely exaggerated scenarios. Most people don't have any idea that the amount of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere is 0.04%, and that the human contribution to that is a fraction of that percent. And if you start to think about it, you think, how in the world could the climate change if if there's 0.0-something percent increase in CO2 one way or the other, and the whole thing falls apart? But you just have to do some due diligence and look into it a little bit. Wow. Yeah, I, you know, you, you mentioned your, your Trans Am, your orange Trans Am is, is, your, uh, is your red Barchetta. My, uh, yep. my red and black Tahoe is my red Barchetta. And, and mm-hmm. they're gas guzzlers. You know, they're big, powerful V8 engines. Um, they're, they're older. But I don't know. I feel a sense of pride. Maybe I'm misplaced in doing this, but I, I feel proud to have what I consider a subversive vehicle in, in light of all the climate change and, and where we're being forced. Well, it's subversive in the sense that, my God, what once used to be something that was prolific and common that ordinary people like you and I could have. I mean, as a high school kid, you could have a V8 powered car. Remember that? Oh, yeah. You know, and now. Now, even people who buy luxury cars, people who buy six-figure luxury cars don't get a V8 anymore. Uh, you buy a $50,000 car, and what do you get? A little four-cylinder engine, maybe. You know, we're being diminished systematically. Even people at the higher end of the scale that are paying a lot of money aren't getting very much in return for their money, and that's what's tragic about it. Uh, you know, I look at my Trans Am that I've had for more than 30 years, and I think about how I could afford a car like, a car like that when I was just a kid. You know, I could afford a V8-powered muscle car. 
Uh, think about the kids today. There's no chance that they're going to be able to afford anything remotely like that. And I think it's tragic and really, really, really sad. Well, it's it, it makes me feel like we're either getting closer to Red Barchetta or maybe even Mad Max, depending on, you know, the last of the V8 interceptors. You know, we, we're being squeezed out of our freedom and, and in, in the name of a faux uh, crisis that, uh, you know, the earth, the climate is changing and, and we're all going to die yeah. if we don't do this. Yeah, you know, there's a really excellent question that I ask people, which is simply, can you give me a specific example of how climate change has negatively affected you personally? Wow, what kind of answers and do you get? And it's always dead air. It's always cricket. Oh. Because they can, can you? Uh, no. Other than the regulations. that's that's, But that's, you know, it's the regulations. It's not climate change. Yeah, the thing itself. You know, they have managed to put forward this boogeyman. It's just like some parents will tell their kid there is a – there is a boogeyman under the bed, and if you don't go to bed and be a good little boy and pull up your blankets and go to sleep, the boogeyman is going to eat your toes, right? Yep. I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that people are falling for now, and I understand why they're falling for it. There has been this immense orchestrated PR campaign, just as there has been with the pandemic and the masks and the vaccines and all of that. They just berate and barrage people with this, but that doesn't make it true. You know, dig into it and look into the facts and also – Look into the hypocrisy. If the climate really is changing, as they tell us that it is, why are people like Barack Obama, for example, building or living in mansions that are literally 100 yards away from the sea that are no more than a few feet above sea level? Why is that? It's almost like he doesn't really believe it himself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, and if these people really believe that the burning of fossil fuels, and it's not fossil fuels, I hate that term, it's natural fuels, if they really believe that that is triggering a catastrophe, what sort of sociopath or psychopath would they have to be to get into a private jet that emits more carbon dioxide in the course of one flight to some international conference than a person like you or I uh, produces as a result of driving our vehicles in the course of an entire year? What sort of sick person would do that? Well, I suppose they're, they're just operating on the idea that uh, we're not going to look at this too closely. Yeah, it's always about that, isn't it? These these moralizing tub thumpers, it's always about rules for you and me, but not for them, isn't it? It, it definitely seems that way. Is Let me ask you this. As far as, as gas prices, I, I've been watching closely, and I've heard some rumblings about mm-hmm. diesel shortages. That's kind of died mm-hmm. down in the last couple of weeks. Uh, mm-hmm. have, have we seen diesel supplies come up, or is there still a, a shortage of, of diesel fuel available? Uh, my understanding is it's regional. You know, so the people up in uh, New York, which just got hit with, I think, five or six feet of snow, uh, diesel over there is consi- heating oil, which is essentially the same thing as diesel. Uh, the prices of, of that have gone up markedly, and there's less supply. And I don't understand exactly why it is, because, you know, you ship the stuff through pipes or you ship it through trucks, but that seems to be the case. Um, I expect, though, that the cost of all of this is going to go up markedly as we continue our, uh, our great march forward toward this wonderful transition that the Biden thing promises us. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, I, don't, have, uh, I don't have any easy answers, but uh, I think the answer is probably found somewhere in everybody needs to become as self-sufficient as they can, and, uh, and we're, I think we're all going to have to learn to, to make do with, with less than what we're used to. No question. But, you know, also, I don't think it's a fait accompli. I don't think we should simply accept uh, a future of impoverishment and scarcity. 
I think it's, it's, it's really important to just stand up to this and say, no, we're not tolerating this anymore. And if enough of us would do it, you know, they've succeeded in atomizing us through all kinds of different mechanisms so that we all feel isolated and disconnected from one another. Nonetheless, if somehow a groundswell uh, can develop where people just say, this is intolerable, this is unacceptable, and most of all, it's immoral because there is no justification for it. People are being hurt, and people are going to die as a result of this. It's evil. It's not just a policy wonk, uh, back-and-forth question. This is evil and vicious, and it needs to be stopped. Amen, bro. Eric, great to talk with you as always. I will send my listeners to your website via the link I provide in the show notes. Thanks again for taking some time to visit with us each week. Oh, well, thank you for having me on, as always. And, and by the way, those who click on the link, you can go to the Eric's uh, Orange Barchetta or Red Barchetta Glows Orange Store and, and listen to this wonderful <laughs> song by Rush. If you need a pickup, this is the one to do it. Eric, we'll talk next week. Great stuff. Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I do want to mention garagedoorproservices.com, one of my great sponsors here on The Brian Hyde Show. It's a local company to southern Utah serving St. George, Cedar City, also Mesquite, Colorado City, some of the most beautiful areas of color country that you could find. And yes, Garage Door Pros installs services and repairs garage doors. In fact, they do commercial service as well as residential service, and they do insulated garage doors too, just in case you're looking to, uh, I don't know, improve your garage. Maybe you plan on doing a little more work out there. Talk to Seth and the crew at Garage Door Pro, at Garage Door Pros, rather, 435-525-2773, or go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com. Well, I know it's risky to even contemplate the prospect of election fraud or manipulation. In fact, there's there's a whole apparatus that is in full operation right now to make sure that nobody questions. If you do question, you'll be labeled as a denier. And that's, uh, you know, supposed to be a thing that'll just shut down debate right there. Well, if you're a denier, we can't even deal with you because you're not even living in reality. Now, of course... The people who are saying this most loudly are the same people who are insisting that men get pregnant and all you have to say is, I'm a woman and you're a woman, but uh, that's, that's another story for another time. Let's talk about how to steal an election. Excellent article that was published on lewrockwell.com earlier this week, and it's, it's a pretty lengthy article, so I'm just going to hit a few of the high points. But Lou Rockwell says, look, the congressional elections on November 8th were a put-up job. As everybody knows, brain-dead Biden has tanked the economy. Inflation is up. People are out of work. They're sick of the woke ideology being crammed down our throats. So he says it's common sense that somebody running on this sorry record isn't going to do well. Now, the Democrat Party, which either supports brain-dead Biden or people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, even further to the left than he is, was in for an electoral, electoral drubbing. Polls taken just before the election showed that was going to happen. A red wave would sweep Democrats from power in Congress. People were sick of things. For example, CNN politics showed Democrats needed at least 50 seats to keep U.S. Senate control, and Republicans needed 51 to take over. 35 seats were on the ballot this year. Based on race ratings by inside elections, Republicans were favored to win 20 seats. 
while Democrats were favored to win 12 seats. Now, for the House, CNN politics showed to control the House of Representatives, a party must hold at least 218 seats out of 435 when all seats are filled. Based on race ratings by inside elections, Republican were favored to win, uh, Republicans rather were favored to win 216 seats this December, this November rather, while Democrats were favored to win 199 seats. 20 seats were rated as toss-ups. But the Democrats did much better than the polls predicted. As Austin Ruse notes, it's absurd that the GOP didn't run away with this election. First, it's an off-year election in which the newly elected president's party often loses, often bigly. Second, the economy's in terrible shape. It's shocking that people did not vote gas prices alone. Then there's the threat of nuclear war. The murder rate is exploding all over the country, and yet the GOP only won a squeaker. So what exactly happened? Paul Craig Roberts explains the same swing states where the last presidential election was stolen are again showing the same mysterious sharp upward readjustment of the vote count for Democrat candidates. In Arizona, where Election Day counting is on hold, mysterious tranches of votes keep arriving days after the election for the Democrat candidate for governor. 17,000 here, 5,000 there. Tucker Carlson asked, who benefits from long delays in vote counting? He investigated and reported that a Democrat won in 12 out of 13 delays in arriving at the outcome. Kind of gives some credence to the idea that it doesn't take 10 days to count the votes. It takes 10 days or more to fix the votes. Now, Lou Rockwell says, now here's a report showing the same spikes in votes in Democrats in last Tuesday's election that we saw in the previous presidential election. These spikes don't happen for Republicans except when the computer adjustments of the margins of victory for Democrats become too large to be believable. Then there's also a spike in the red vote to eliminate the unbelievable margin of Democrat victory. He links to the stories that show this. So where are the spikes that Roberts is talking about? Well, according to Alexandra Bruce, Mike Lindell and his group of researchers show massive spikes up and down in vote counts coming from the different races in the 2022 midterm elections. But the key takeaway here is the spikes always favor the Democrat candidate. This evidence cannot be ignored. Reporting live using data from the Edison report, the first spike we see is in the race between Warnock and Walker in Georgia. It has that familiar F shape that we saw in the 2020 election. In the Fetterman-Oz race, Fetterman had a backwards F from vote dumping when he lost 100,000 votes from one moment to the next, which Mike says is impossible and he thinks it probably had to do with him correcting the Steele algorithm because it was just too blatant. In the governor race between Mastriano and Shapiro in Pennsylvania, same thing happened there as well. The algorithm was set too high, and they auto-corrected it a, a bit too abruptly so as to subtract 90,000 votes. Now he goes on and on and on through all the different inconsistencies. And, and this is one that, that really should be standing out in people's minds. At least 20% of the machines were not working throughout Maricopa County, Arizona. That's, uh, that's kind of an interesting uh, coincidence, wouldn't you say? That the machines went down in the red precincts of Maricopa County to disrupt voters for Cary Lake and Blake Masters, or that they went down in Suffolk County in Pennsylvania. I'm sorry, Suffolk County, rather New York. Sorry. There was another one in, in, Pens- in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, where a par- approximately 44 p- polling locations ran out of paper to print ballots. Oops. <laughs> Sorry. Very interesting. Now, 
Dr. Naomi Wolf explains how electronic voting machines make it actually easier to steal elections. She says people could steal elections in the analog technology of paper and locked ballot boxes, of course, by destroying or hiding votes or bribing voters a la Tammany Hall or by other forms of wrongdoing. So security and chain of custody, as well as anti-corruption scrutiny, always were needed in guaranteeing accurate election counts. But there was no reason with analog physical processing of votes to query the tradition of the secret ballot. Before the digital scanning of votes, you could not hack a wooden ballot box, and you couldn't set an algorithm to misread a pile of paper ballots. So at the end of the day, one way or another, you were counting physical documents. But those days are gone, and in many districts there are digital systems reading ballots. Now this isn't the first time that the left has stolen an election. Lou Rockwell says it happened in the 2020 presidential election, too. Ron Unz offers his unique or his usual cogent analysis, saying there does seem to be considerable circumstantial evidence of widespread ballot fraud by Democratic Party forces. Hardly surprising, given the apocalyptic manner in which so many of their leaders had characterized the threat of a Trump re-election. After all, if they sincerely believed that a Trump victory would be catastrophic for America, why would they not use every possible means, fake and fair, fair and foul alike rather, to save our country from that dire fate? In particular, several of the major swing states contain large cities like Detroit, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, and Atlanta that are both totally controlled by the Democratic Party and also notoriously corrupt. And various eyewitnesses have suggested that the huge anti-Trump margins they provided may have been heavily padded to ensure the candidate's defeat. Now, even leaving aside some of these plausible claims, Lou Rockwell says the case for a stolen election seems almost airtight. I don't know or care anything about Dominion voting machines, whether they're controlled by Venezuelan Marxists, Chinese communists, or Martians. The most blatant election theft was accomplished in absolutely plain sight. Not long before the election, we're talking 2020, the hard drive of an abandoned laptop owned by Joe Biden's son, Hunter, revealed a gigantic international corruption scheme, quite possibly involving the candidate himself. But the facts of this enormous political scandal were entirely ignored and boycotted by virtually every mainstream media outlet. And once the story was finally published in the pages of the New York Post, America's oldest newspaper, all links to the Post article and its website were suddenly banned by Twitter, Facebook, and other social media outlets to ensure that voters remained ignorant until after they cast their ballots. Now, renowned international journalist Glenn Greenwald was hardly a Trump partisan, but he was outraged that the editors of The Intercept, the $100 million publication he himself had co-founded, refused to allow him to cover that massive media scandal, and he angrily resigned in protest. In effect, America's media and tech giants formed a united front to steal the election and somehow drag the crippled Biden-Harris ticket across the finish line. Now, I'm not saying you have to believe all this. I'm not saying that if you don't believe this, you know, you are totally, you know, a dupe. But what I'm pointing out here is that what, what Lou Rockwell and many of these authors that he's citing, many of these researchers and reporters that he's citing, are showing that there is ample evidence to consider that uh, not everything was on the up and up. And it's, it's kind of interesting because there are a lot of people who I think are nominally on the conservative side of the aisle, but their dislike or distaste for Donald Trump blinds them to even considering the possibility that uh, maybe this election was tampered with. Look, it's not a matter of, we need Donald Trump in office to save our country. It's a matter of if our system can be manipulated 
at the will of those who want to, you know, urge a particular outcome. What point does it have? What point do it, does it make to even vote anymore? Does it even matter? This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I want to give a shout out here to HSLAmmo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, and LifesavingFood.com. I don't know about you, the, the LifesavingFood.com website to me is, it's a great source of peace. Some people might think, oh, I don't know, if I start getting prepared, I might, I might start to feel like I was, you know, living in fear. But, you know, the whole point of being prepared is so you don't have to live in fear. Why? Because you know you have options. Look, I, I think that we are headed for some difficult times. And, and, you know, whether is that deliberate or not, I think it probably is deliberate. I think that there are people in power, and I'm talking from the global levels right on down to local levels, who are, are doing what they can to consolidate control. And that means that all of us are going to feel the pain. We're feeling it right now. Every time you go to fuel up your car, every time you go grocery shopping, have you priced Thanksgiving turkeys this year? I mean, once you get the loan paperwork filled out, it's not so bad. But at any rate, uh, this is a great time to be thinking about what can I do to better prepare myself, to better prepare the people around me. And not so much with a doomsday attitude, but simply, what are we preparing for? That's the question we need to answer. What is it exactly? Are we preparing for the apocalypse? The second coming? What is it? We're preparing for life. Whatever that may bring. And it might bring, you know, good times. We may see the pendulum swing back. In which case, we're still not out anything. That preparedness uh, is simply a matter of being able to solve your own problems as much as possible. But there really is peace of mind in getting yourself as squared away as you can and encouraging the people who are closest to you to get squared away as well. Okay, I won't beat that drum too much more. I do want to talk a little bit about Thanksgiving. Isn't it sad? Thanksgiving used to be a holiday where we really celebrated the abundance and blessings of, of living in a wonderful free country with free markets and lots of things to choose from that make our lives better. But now it appears that media and schools see the Thanksgiving holiday as a chance to, well, advance the woke agenda a little bit further. They demonize Thanksgiving. Eric Lindrum has a great article on American greatness that says, In recent years, several left-wing institutions, including the mainstream media and public education, have ramped up their attacks against the beloved holiday of Thanksgiving, often falsely accusing the holiday of remembering racism and violence that never occurred. Thanksgiving is remembered as the special feast held by the pilgrims after they first arrived in America aboard the Mayflower in 1620, and it was historically significant as an occasion where the pilgrims and Native Americans were able to come together peacefully and enjoy the abundance of natural resources that the New World had to offer. Now, in following centuries, it's observed as a holiday where Americans express thanks and gratitude for family, friends, and other blessings in their lives. However, as reported by Fox News, far-left activists and pundits have used the mainstream media to viciously bash the concept of Thanksgiving. On MSNBC last year, one such activist named Yassi Ross falsely claimed that instead of bringing stuffing and biscuits, those settlers brought genocide and violence. Back in 2020, Morning Joy guest Jason Johnson claimed that several people he knew called it Colonizer Christmas because they really don't like the idea of what Thanksgiving represents. Wow, talk about a giant suck on a sour lemon. 
In 2019, the New Yorker magazine published a story that falsely connected Thanksgiving to Jim Crow and the segregation era, even though these occurred hundreds of years after Thanksgiving and had nothing to do with the holiday. Glorifying the endurance of white pilgrim founders diverted attention from the brutality of Jim Crow and racial violence and downplayed the foundational role of African slavery. Even the fictional TV show Grey's Anatomy took shots at Thanksgiving last year when a character went on a diatribe against the holiday saying, Thanksgiving isn't really a holiday we should celebrate. There's no actual evidence Native Americans were even invited to a feast. I think they cared more about being colonized and having their land stolen than mashed potatoes. Now, this is also false, as there is, in fact, documented, document, <laughs> documented evidence of a mass peaceful gathering between the pilgrims and the natives. Now, when asked to, under, under, to explain rather the underlying hatred and the bizarre uh, antipathy toward the holiday, Jeffrey Dickens, director of media analysis for the Media Research Center, explained the vitriol may be the result of anti-Christian sentiment from the left. Because there is a religious aspect to the holiday, Dickens explained expressing gratitude for blessings of faith, family, and living in a free country that sadly many in the secular press are just not comfortable discussing. Melanie Kirkpatrick, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, also pointed to outright lies about Thanksgiving being taught in public schools. She emphasized that elementary schools are doing a better job of teaching the first Thanksgiving since Native Americans are correctly presented as vital participants in the 1621 feast without whose help the pilgrims might not have survived. But that's not true in high schools. If Thanksgiving is studied at all, it's often misrepresented. A student at a prestigious New York public high school once told her that the roots of the holiday are found in English settlers' custom of holding Thanksgivings when they killed Indians. That's a gross misrepresentation. So I share that article with you not so much to get your blood pressure up, but to say, you know, there are people who are distorting this Pay attention to what you are doing with your family members, with the kids in your home, grandkids, children, whatever. Make sure that they understand what Thanksgiving really entails. And if there's a religious aspect, which I really hope there is, you know, for, for your celebration, might be time to focus on that. As crazy as things are and as chaotic as the world seems to be getting, we have a great deal for which to be thankful. And, and even more importantly... If we want to see real solutions to the problems that are vexing us right now, those solutions are found by turning to God, to whom we give thanks for the good things that we do enjoy. I don't know why that fell out of favor or why it's uh, so unfashionable these days, but, but it really is. That's sad. I happen to believe that uh, God's hand was upon those pilgrims. I think that... Uh, they and the, the people who followed in their stead, the ethic that they brought to the new world, and with God's help, they tamed a continent, they established a land where there was real freedom, real liberty that abided for a long time, much longer than it has in other places. But I also believe that we're in very real danger of losing that if we forget the source of that liberty, the author of that liberty. All right, let me hop down from the pulpit here. One last article I want to share with you. Um, I know we hear the term Great Reset, and some people's eyes glaze over, oh, here we go, conspiracy theory, World Economic Forum stuff. But there is a Great Reset that needs to happen. In fact, I'm ready to embrace this Great Reset. It's not the one being proffered by uh, the World Economic Forum. I would embrace the one that uh, is uh, going to hit Control-Alt-Delete 
on the totalitarian state. J.B. Shirk, writing for AmericanThinker.com, has a great article here. He says, there are three government narratives pushed today that are not real. Number one, fraud-free elections. Number two, a looming climate apocalypse. And number three, a COVID health emergency requiring government control. Now, if you see through only one, then you're not looking hard enough. Or as Bill Ingvall might say, if you now believe COVID is mostly a hoax, but you're still terrified of global warming, here's your sign. Conversely, if you do see through them, you're likely being censored for expressing those points of view. So here's our impasse. When governments claim to have a monopoly on truth, then citizens are expected to accept preposterous fantasies, no matter how much opposing evidence they might see. The narrative is absolute, dissent is forbidden, total obedience is the objective. Last century, free Westerners understood these features as telltale signs of totalitarianism. Today, much less free Westerners have been taught to embrace, without scrutiny or wisdom, the the government's fairy tales as part of our required, if not sacred, deference to the bureaucratic state's cult of expertise. Whether citizens grasp this shift in individual freedom or not, the general rule handed down from governments is stark yet succinct. Ask us no questions, we will tell you no lies. It does seem that way. He says Westerners desperately need to reboot their systems of government before those systems of government delete the public's power to ever make changes again. It's not possible for political leaders to claim their countries support personal freedom when they snatch that freedom away at the first sneeze, cow fart, or unapproved tweet. It's not logical for governments to claim that they protect democracy when armies of unelected permanent bureaucrats run the modern state. And it's not reasonable for Western nations to claim that they cherish free thinking and free expression when their technocratic surveillance arms actively censor speech and promote state-approved points of view over all others. I think he's got a point here. There's much more to this article, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to the, to the conclusion that J.B. Shirk arrives at, which is fear is defeated with knowledge. The more we question, the more we know. And the more we know, the easier it is to stand up to a seemingly all-powerful state. So is it any wonder then why government wants citizens to know so little? After all, totalitarianism feeds off ignorance. It feeds off panic and alarm. It's why members of the greatest generation who saw state tyranny face-to-face look at the loss of freedom and servile compliance all around them and weep at what the West has become. That's true, by the way. It's not just, it's not just the uh, folks who fought World War II, and it's not our parents' generation so much as any of us who can remember the freedoms we once had. We recognize the difference. Young people today may have a little bit of trouble, but we can help them see what we're seeing and hopefully take the steps to hit the reset button before someone else hits it on us. This is The Brian Hyde Show.